This episode is sponsored by Cozy. Did you know there's an organizing app designed just for families? If you're starting to feel busy again, and honestly, when did we ever really stop, and your calendar is filling up with more events and kids' activities than all of last year, why not do your future self a favor and get Cozy? That's C-O-Z-I. Cozy is the number one organizing app that families use to juggle school schedules, practices, meetings, doctor's appointments, and even a workout or a date night. Imagine that. It was even named a must-have app for a better life by the Today Show. With Cozy, you'll be all set up so everyone knows who's doing what, when, and where. Cozy will even send emails every morning with the day's agenda, so no more missed pickups or double bookings. Here's how it works. Cozy tracks everyone's schedules and events in one place with a shared color-coded calendar. Cozy even reminds others about events so you don't have to. The best part? It's free. Just download Cozy Family Organizer from the App Store. Again, that's C-O-Z-I to get the free app today. You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad that you're here, and I feel like this is a conversation that's been a long time coming and is extremely needed in today's world where online media blasts us with information and opinions all hours of the day, Um, and how do we take that reality and then teach our kids and ourselves to be better discerners of the information, to be critical thinkers, to not be so reactive to someone who has a different opinion than ours. Um, And I think this is just a crucial skill, like I said, for us and especially for our children who are coming up in a world um, like we've never seen. Um, So I'm so excited to share the work of my guest with you today. She is the creator and owner of Brave Writer, the hugely popular online writing and language arts program and podcast, and the fast-growing weekly habit called Poetry Tea Time. She is also the author of Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. And that's really what the meat of this conversation is about. How do we actually teach our children to be critical thinkers? What tools can we use ourselves to be less reactive, to take a bird's eye view of any source of information and to not pick it apart, but to try and understand where that opinion is coming from and why that source or that person is sharing that particular piece of information. I think this is going to enrich how you see the world and it definitely is going to uplevel your children and better prepare them for not only surviving, but thriving in the world of today. So again, I'm so grateful for Julie and all of her work. I've got amazing resources from her in the show notes, so definitely go check them out there. And in the meantime, please enjoy this episode with Julie Bogart. Well, hello, Julie Bogart. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I always do this, uh, especially when I have an amazing author on the show. Can you take us through your origin story and, and how the events in your life led you to the work that you're doing now? What a great question. Uh, I grew up with a mother who is a professional writer. She actually has written 75 books, I think it is, in her lifetime. Wow. And so I spent a lot of time in the library reading and actually writing from my youngest age. And I think I just have this passion for self-expression that was nourished and nurtured by the arts and by my mother's passion for the arts and literature. Uh, As I got older and had children, 
I discovered this amazing practice of homeschooling through friends who were also homeschooling their kids. And it gave me this beautiful stage to continue my own reading journey. I got to learn even more about history, even more about math and science and arts and literature. And I did it simultaneously to educating my children. In fact, I like to say that homeschooling led me to discovering what I call an awesome adulthood, one that was rich with both aspirations for myself. You know, I I started working on my own writing career, et cetera. Uh, going to grad school, but it also, because I was with my children and helping them get the education they needed, I was able to, from an adult perspective, re-examine all the things I'd been taught as a child, whether in school or college or through my life experiences. And so fast forward a few more years, a few more decades, I realized that there was a journey piece to thinking well that occurs over a lifetime of reading and study and exposure to life's raw edges, to the experiences of travel and living abroad, to raising children and having a family, uh, to reading widely, to participating in the political process. Like all of those things contribute to who we are. And what's fascinating to me and what has fascinated me all along. I've, I've lived in Morocco, in France, in what used to be called Zaire. I've traveled to, you know, 30 countries. I've spoken multiple languages. No matter who I meet, children, adults, wherever they live, we all are convinced that we think well. All of us. <laughs> Each person is a strong, firm believer in how they do the abacus of life and the conclusions they've drawn. And so this process of how we think and why we think what we do has fascinated me for a long time. And this book, Raising Critical Thinkers, is really the fruit of a multiple decade journey for me. Oh, I love that. And I love that. And then, I mean, that just spurred so many questions in my mind, but I'm going to try to stay organized. <laughs> you know, I, I, in doing the research for this episode, I saw that you are the leader of a group called the Brave Writers. Um, what lessons did you take from that? And that was a great part from your, your homeschooling experience. What lessons did you take from that that led into the book, Raising Critical Thinkers? Because I think that that was probably the foundation of, of how you came to write that book. Yeah. So Brave Writer is our company that teaches writing and language arts to students. We originally began, I I began as a solo entrepreneur, of course, uh, just for homeschoolers. But today we serve students of all kinds, particularly during the lockdown and the pandemic. We've seen just an enormous surge of participation from kids who are in traditional school settings. But the work of Brave Writer is really the heart of how I see things. Brave Writer is about identifying what you want to say and discovering how best to say it. It's not about commas. It's not (laughs) about the five-paragraph essay. It's actually about interior work, really understanding the vocabulary that you've developed and how to use that vocabulary to best articulate what you know or what you want to know. And of course, all writing requires a certain amount of research, experience, intuition, hunches, insight. So I've developed tools that help kids overcome writer's block. I've helped kids discover that writing is something as natural to them as speaking or texting. We've discovered together that writing is as um, valuable 
as speech. And partly I credit the internet era with bringing that revelation to a whole new level. Like this generation of kids already knows writing is valuable in a way that my generation as teenagers didn't, right? We only had the telephone. But today they text, they post on social media, they're crafting their expression all the time. So Brave Writer really is the foundation of a critical thinking journey. It is about discovering hey, I actually have something to say. I want to say it. And here are tools that help me say it in the most powerful, effective ways. And here are tools that help me examine what I'm saying to make sure that what I'm saying actually holds water. Yeah, I love that. I love that because you're right. That's something that isn't truly taught in schools. I think we're we're on, you know, the syllabus and we go through the syllabus and then you're, you know, pushed on to the next grade, especially the past two years. I mean, oh. it's been just completely chaotic. And I'm a mom of two small boys and you know, it's been it's been rough. It's been really tough. Um, but with with all of the things that you could have drawn upon from Brave Writer to create this new book, why was critical thinking the topic? Why was that the one that you that you chose to write a book on? Yeah, great question. I will tell your audience this: the original title of the book was "Raising Self Aware Thinkers," and when mm. I spoke with my editor. She wanted me to focus on critical thinking because it's such a catchphrase in the culture. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, I will do that. But this book is about self-awareness because you can't be a critical thinker without it. So very often when you hear the term critical thinking, we immediately think, let's criticize that guy's thinking over there that we disagree with, right? Like, how can I poke holes in her argument? How can I Mm -hmm. show someone that this doesn't hold water? But self-aware critical thinking requires you to do what I call an academic selfie. It's flipping the camera lens around and examining how you arrived at the thoughts and beliefs and worldview that you have first. Mm. Actually being critical of the way you've come to the beliefs and perspectives you have. What are the components? What contributes? Um, and, And what is your reactivity when you're listening to someone that you don't agree with. For instance, I notice for me, like when I want to engage in social media or blogging over a hot button social issue, when I start reading somebody's post or an article, if I'm really passionate about my side, I immediately am searching for rhetoric, language I disagree with. I immediately challenge their sources. I don't accept their statistics easily. I'm looking for that key thing that I can pull out and show them isn't true because I have this other evidence. It's reactivity. I'll feel it in my body. I'll even have like a tight Mm. jaw or a pit of my stomach. I'll feel nervous. Um, I remember I was studying, this will help you understand a little bit of what I mean. I remember studying an issue that I disagreed with with my husband. This was years ago, a decade or more, two decades ago. And I knew we disagreed because we had fought about it. I was just starting to explore it in a new way. So one night after he fell asleep, just think about how crazy this is. After he fell asleep, (laughs) I came down the stairs, locked the door to my office, got online and started searching for information about this thing that we disagreed about on the side that he didn't agree with. And I read and read and read. I was sweating, dripping with sweat, like worried I'd get caught, worried I'd be caught, (laughs) you know, with this heretical thought that I wasn't allowed to have in our marriage. And 
after I finished, I cleared my browser, my history cache, in case mm. I died overnight and he woke and would find that the last thing I looked at was something he didn't agree with. That's how crazy we are. That's what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. When we're talking about critical thinking, we have to include our own sort of panic, our fear that we'll get ejected from our community for not agreeing. Um, your, your podcast is about motherhood. Have you entered into those big grand debates about letting your baby cry out at night versus getting up with your baby or breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. Have you gotten into some of those conversations? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, and, and for me, it was like, I was, I was more triggered early on when I first became a mother. And then after getting like battered down so many times and been in like so many, you know, tete-a-tetes that I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to keep my thoughts to myself because that's easier and that's safer in today's world. And I'll just think the way I want to think and agree with everyone, you know, face to face. I mean, I feel like it's either that or you're always fighting with people because there's never just one way to be. And especially with social media, I mean, once it's out there, then you're in your own camp and they're in their camp and then that's it. Like, I feel like that's what we've been reduced to. See, you just put your finger on the reason why I wrote this book. So I have been in the social media space, on the internet space, right, since it started in the 1990s. I was, you know, mid-30s at the time. And so I've really been there from the dawn of all this discussion. And what I thought was going to be a utopia of mutual understanding that the internet was going to afford us it started that way. I mean, I remember just eavesdropping on blogs of communities of people that I had nothing in common with, and I was just a sponge, learning things that I did not know because now I had access yeah. to people and ideas that I could not have accessed before. But it turned. Some of it is deliberate by the algorithms that these big you know, tech companies use to, to pit us against each other. But some of it is what I believe has to do with this critical thinking piece. We are used to being in our fan groups. We love our yep. communities that agree with us. And social media is a place where we did not realize that we were going to have to also account for people who don't agree. We spent most of our school years being tested, multiple choice tests, writing answers in essay questions, true, false, where there was a single right answer. Yes. And we were supposed to get it right. And then if you got it right, you got an A. And we get on social media and we keep thinking, there is a single right answer. Yes. And, and I think I have it and I'm going to write it down. And if I do, everyone will agree. And when they don't, it is such a shock. It's like mm -hmm. we're going through this collective traumatic experience of finding out there's nuance. Yeah. And, and, and we didn't know it. It's, we were all in our churches, our synagogues, our political parties, our health food groups, our breastfeeding groups. And we thought that if anyone came into that group, we could easily persuade them because we've done the research. But right. social media has made it so there is no way to separate those groups. And, and we keep thinking there's a right answer, but there isn't. Well, I mean, that's it right there. I was just going to say, well, what do we do? How do we move forward besides, like you said, reflecting on what we know, what we think we know? I, I just feel like that's a much harder path. And most people don't want to examine their own feelings. They don't want to examine their own history and when that led them to thinking that way, you know, myself included. How do you start to persuade adults, especially who are, you know, the parents of children <laughs> coming up right. that this is important and valuable work? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, the trickiest part of writing this book 
is that I felt like I was writing it for two levels. You know, parents want their kids to think well, but what they usually mean by that is to think like them. Yes. Thinking well doesn't mean they're going to think like their parents, but that's our goal. When we're a parent, we're just indoctrination machines from the time they wake up till they go to bed every night. We're like, yes, you should wash your hands. And there is scientific reasons for getting (laughs) these invisible things off your hands. And your four-year-old is like, I hate the feel of water on my fingers, right? She's over here with her personal perception, which is water feels weird on my hands. And you're over here with the community logic story of the scientific world that says things you can't see are dangerous to you. And so we're just indoctrinating our kids. Hey, guess what? You don't get to think that way anymore because we have superior information. That's as it should be. There's nothing wrong with that particularly. But what happens over time is we actually start to believe our own rhetoric And we start Mm -hmm. to believe the beliefs that we have adopted as core tenants of our communities. And our community membership is so contingent on agreement that we will double down even when we're faced with evidence that contradicts what we thought was true because we don't want to lose our people. We don't want to lose our membership. So, yes, great question. How do we do this? I was trying to write for parents First, so they could understand what forms a worldview and then help them understand how to help their kids do that work. So it's two levels. And the first thing I would say is this. The reason this is such an important topic and why I'm so passionate about it is you will have a much better life and much better relationships if you can actually understand the people that you love and know and are not combative. It doesn't mean you give up your precious positions, but you will gain access to insight, to a a broader perspective that allows you to account for the outlier, which is what creates a great community and a great civilization. You know, one of the strengths of the United States is that we understood, the founders understood that we had both individual pursuits that brought about happiness and community values that deserved protection. Mm -hmm. And those two things are in endless tension. And so they set up this structure of government that was supposed to help us navigate community values against individual rights to happiness. And we don't always solve it perfectly, and those evolve over time. But if we can just remember that that's what we're talking about every time we enter these issues, we might ask better questions. Mm. So for instance, let's just take a really hard one like gun control. When we're having a big fight, if I'm a big, let's say my child got shot in a school shooting and I'm a gun control rights advocate, and I'm talking to my neighbor in Kentucky who loves to hunt, we are coming from such vastly different protected identities that we can't even imagine including that person in our solution. And this episode is brought to you by Sambacol. Sambacol Black Elderberry is the original black elderberry supplement. Black elderberry, if you didn't already know, has been used for centuries in traditional folk remedies and it's prized for its anti-inflammatory properties and high antioxidant content. I first came across black elderberry in Ireland and I fell in love with it there. As a busy mom, I cannot afford to be down for the count. I need to feel strong, healthy, and I want support for my immune system. And that's where Sambacol comes in. 
So Sambacol makes it super easy to feel your best all year round. If you are interested in trying them out for yourself and your family, head on over to SambacolUSA.com and be sure to use my code MOTHER15 to save 15% off your order. And if you need any recommendations on which products to choose, they're all great, but my personal favorite are the gummies. They're actually my kids' favorites too, so I just pop them in first thing in the morning uh, with the rest of my supplements and I'm good to go. Where we want to get is where, yeah, this is how deep my felt need is, my research, what I think is right. This is how deep yours is. How do we include both of those people in a solution? How do we even start to think that way? Um, and, And you'll notice on a much smaller scale, it happens with your children all the time. We'll have these big discussions about video games. How much should kids be allowed to be on their screens, right? How often do we include the child's pursuit of happiness in that conversation. Never. Parents tend to focus only on the community value of, yep. hey, guess what? This is dangerous. Here's scientific data. Here's what I think is right for you. And yet here's your child with individual perceptions that are controlling their emotions that are actually influencing how they feel about you. Yeah. So if we're going to critically think we've got to include more nuance, more of the person's story, more of their felt need, if we expect ours to be understood. So I'm passionate about it. This is my topic. It's I my- can tell. Yeah. I mean, it, you're you're jumping out of the screen. I love it. And it's just, <laughs> it, it, well, it makes me want to be a better listener, you know, and I'm someone who, who thinks I'm a great listener. And then it's like, well, do I really, you know, do I really listen to the mm. other side? Do I really listen to my children when I'm tired and it's the end of the day and they want to do something and I'm just not hearing it? And then it's like, well maybe I could, you know, maybe that there is a possibility to expand, you know, expand my compassion, expand my ability to just close my mouth and listen and try and really understand the other side. I think that that's incredibly valuable. And now more than ever, like, I'm so thrilled that we're having this conversation because I feel like this country honestly is on the verge of a civil war with, with how intense the dialogue is when it comes to COVID, when it comes to gun control, when it comes yes. to politics, everything, everything. And it's like, that's right. How do we move on? And we, I don't, you know, I want, I want sustainability. I think that comes from a very feminine perspective. We want to get along and have a, a, a country, a, a world where our children are safe and, and have everything at their disposal. And there's not yep. hunger and there's not homelessness. And, you know, there's, there's systems in place where where they are supported. So this, uh, to me, is crucial. This is a crucial subject to be talking about right now at this point in history. Yeah, and I want to piggyback off of what you said about listening, because listening is challenging. I think sometimes people think listening means agreement. Sometimes they think it means giving equal amounts of time, airtime, to both sides as though both sides have equal value. But I'm actually transcending all of that. I'm not trying to decide who's right or wrong, whether I agree or not. What I'm actually trying to do is just share the stage. Um, And for the sake of actually knowing better. So one of the things that I talk about in my book is this idea that we want to generate insight more than we want to get it right. We're always driving for, I have the right ideas, I have the right statistics. Um, There's a sort of a notion out in the critical thinking space, I did a ton of research, that we should be open-minded and that we should think like a scientist, which means be more interested in getting it right than being right. 
I think both of those are flawed. None of us can be open-minded. Our minds are crammed full of all of our perspectives, histories, stories, experiences. So when we say open your mind, there's literally precious little space left for any openness. Secondly, thinking about getting it right allows all those biases to control what we're reading. And we will decide, well, I like this source, don't like that source. Um, I will agree with this statistic. I will ignore that one. We don't even realize we're doing it. It's so automatic. So what I think actually moves us out of this polarization isn't agreement or disagreement or even compassionate listening, although compassion's beautiful, but you may not feel it. It's being curious to generate more insight into what that person is saying. So let's say you have a 10-year-old who says, I should be able to play on the computer all day. You shouldn't tell me I have to get off after an hour. What does that actually mean to this child? This isn't a thing of like, oh, I feel compassion that you want to, or (laughs) I don't want you to because it's dangerous. It's more like, what's driving that? What, what does this child think would happen if they had 24 hours on the computer? Let's find out more about that. So then I might say that, wow, so you think it'd be fun to be on for 24 hours. Tell me more about that. What, what would happen in those 24 hours? And so then your child's like, well, I'd be able to beat all the levels without stopping. Oh, that's amazing. W- would you be able to stop to go to the bathroom? And the child would be like, yeah, I could do the bathroom. What would you do about food? Well, would you bring me food? I need you to bring me food because I can't get out of that chair. I so swear you're, you're in my house right now. <laughs> 24 hours. Yeah, you're, you're, you're 24 hours in a chair. You're going to get up just to pee. I'm going to bring you food. Okay, who would be on the other side of that computer? Who would you be talking to? X, Y, Z, and this person. What happens when you beat that level? Oh my gosh, mom, I opened the secret treasure chest and all these gold coins come out and then I can use them to do X. Wow, that does sound incredibly fun. What should we do if you get tired? What would you want to do if you get... Like, that's generating insight. We start to get a picture of the mind life, of the meaning our children are making. We're not just shutting that down with our shoulds and our beliefs and our scientific data. This is a person who is having a fantasy life that isn't accessible to us without our curiosity. So once we start down that journey... We create possibility. We might even say, you know what? This sounds interesting. Shall we do an experiment? How long could you go? Did you know, honey, (laughs) that there are dance marathons where people raise money for good causes and they dance all night till they're exhausted? We could raise money where you did a video marathon for 24 hours and we could send it to your favorite cause. That could be a cool way to do this. Elevate, change it, understand it, be curious, generate insight. I think we get so stuck on this binary of agreement, empathy or not. Sometimes, like let's say we're doing research into the Holocaust and we're studying, you know, Herman Goering or something. You don't have to agree or disagree with him. We automatically do. He's horrible henchmen of Hitler's. But my goal when I do research is to generate insight. How did this guy become that guy? Mm-hmm. What animated his thinking? And you know what's interesting? Sometimes when you generate insight, you're more horrified by the end. Mm. It doesn't mean you like them better. Right. It means you get it more. So, in, so what I say is this. Instead of trying to get it right, try to get it. Mm. Just try to get it. 
That's critical thinking. Just get it. What did this study mean to achieve? What did it hope to tell me? What did, you know, that guy on cable news that I don't agree with, what is his goal? Right. What do I think informed him that made him want me to hear that information? That's critical thinking. It's almost like taking it from a bird's eye view of you're, you're looking down yes. at the information, yep. but you're not, you're not taking in the information. You're just understanding the motivation behind it. It, you got it. In fact, gosh, I feel like you've already read my book because you keep pointing to things that are in it. There's an amazing book called The Overview Effect that is from the 1970s that is about the astronaut experience. The first time human beings got off the surface of our planet and looked down at it from space. Talk about a 50,000 foot view is more like a mile view or however high I, I'm bad with numbers. Numbers for me are just adjectives. They're never <laughs> true, so don't ever listen to my statistics. But anyway, they're really high up there, right? And suddenly, one of the astronauts said he couldn't understand why, but suddenly the Earth seemed tiny, whole, and fragile. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what the overview does. Yep. You are talking about taking that bird's eye view of uh, look at your child's desires, at their thought patterns, at the person in the grocery line, the person on your social media account. What is animating that force? And here's what that does. It dials back your reactivity. Yep. You feel less attacked because suddenly you're fascinated more than you're worried. Mm-hmm. You're curious more than you're self-righteous, Right. And that's where we have to go if we're going to overcome this divide. We have to get more curious, not less. Oh, I love that. I love that so much because it makes me think like, at what point does the child stop being curious, stop having that fantasy life, that imaginative life when every single turn they're being shut down by teachers and their parents and grandparents, you know, who just want the best for them, but they're, they're pushing their own dogma on them. What age do you think that children start to just become more robotic? I'm, I'm not kidding you. You're basically reading my book. So <laughs> it's amazing. So they've literally studied it, and it's by sixth grade. Oh. And it is because of testing. Yep. And it's one of the reasons people homeschool. They yeah. are trying to avoid the shutdown of that imaginative life. Interestingly, the third section of my book is called The Rhetorical Imagination. And one of the things that we have lost by the time we get to high school, college, or beyond is the capacity to play with ideas the same way kids play with dress-up clothes to be different characters. We should feel intellectual freedom to pretend to believe something, just the way our kids pretended to be Robin Hood. You know, we don't really think when our kids are walking around like Robin Hood that they're going to steal from the rich and give to the poor, but they're experiencing what's that like. Mm -hmm. And similarly, when they play Grand Theft Auto, that awful video game that every mother I've ever met thinks is horrible, they are actually imagining a lawless world. They're experiencing consequences in a safe context. That's the power of imagination. So when we're talking about a rhetorical imagination, it's the ability to do that with rhetoric. It's the ability to do that with more complex thinking to allow yourself to be free and unencumbered by proving something and to just wallow in the complexity of ideas that aren't your own Mm -hmm. and to try them on for size. What would it feel like if this is the way I saw the world? I love that. What, What more do I need to know to understand this group of people or that particular agenda? 
it's, it's wild. Well, and I just feel like in, yeah, like in your body, like it's just, it's such a gift to your body, you know, because you're not sweating, you're not tense, your heart's not racing. Like you're actually thinking and breathing and, and opening up space, I think on an atomic level, you know, that it's just, it's life giving. I, I would say that becoming a mother that especially that first time, but you know, I've had five kids and it felt magical every single time is the closest during those first, that first year, especially it's the closest you come to that pure curiosity because this little package of a person Mm -hmm. is unknown to you. You're curious about all of it. Why did it giggle? Why did it look at you and look away? Why did it go for that toy? Why did it use its right hand? That's the thing we're trying to recapture, but we're trying to recapture it with ideas. We're trying to recapture it with grown people who we have history and baggage with. But it is that sort of, um, what does Buddhism call it? The Shoshin perspective, the beginner's mind. Uh, and it, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it, it can have a spiritual component, but it can feel very academic. It can feel very um, human, very conversational. Like I, It's all of it right? It's not in one domain. It's in all domains. You have it when you um, become an athlete. You know, when I first was learning to run marathons, everything was new. It's that newness that we want to revive in our relationships with ideas and people and communities. Yeah. Yeah. They say if you've been married to someone for a lifetime, you've really been married to every iteration of that person as they've grown and changed. I mean, it's never, it's never ending, which... I think could give a lot of people hope. (laughs) A thousand percent. And honestly, and that maybe is the gift of age. I just turned 60 this year and my mother is 83 and I, she's the wisest person. She's my hero. She's my every, Mm -hmm. everything. And uh, I was complaining about some pattern that I kept going through. I have triggers that I'm trying to overcome and I've done, I'm from Southern California. So therapy is like my birthright. I've been doing it forever. (laughs) I read all the books, right? Like that's just Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Like that's me. So I was like, mom, I'm 60. How, how have I not overcome this yet? And my mother literally said back to me, oh, Julie, you're still so young. You have plenty of time. I'm, you know, and I thought, wow, that is a woman who has been in beginner's mind her whole life. She's 83, mm. and she just understands that you are just continuing to grow, to overcome, to know more, to know deeper, to know better, to have your assumptions overturned or modified or nuanced. That's the critical thinking journey, and it's personal. I think a lot of the literature mm-hmm. when I was doing research is so sort of clinical in its treatment of the thing. And I really was trying to bring the heart into this conversation, the personhood, the relational, the felt experience of critical thinking, not, well, what's the difference between confirmation bias and the ostrich effect? Mm -hmm. Like, no, that's not what this book is. Well, and especially too, I think if you're trying to reach parents and mothers, especially like that is, that is the way to the heart, you know, that's, what's going to grab their attention. Like, just like this conversation, do you think it was the mother, your mother and the way that she moved through the world and continues to do so that affected your worldview and, and brought you into this work? Do you think that it was always destined to be just because of the way that her energy was and is? That's an amazing question. So yes, Um, And I would also credit my dad. They're not married anymore, but my dad's a lawyer. 
And uh, the two of them brought these two very specific energies. My mom mm -hmm. radiates relationship and compassion and very attentive and attuned to human connection. My dad, on the other hand, at the dinner table, he would say something, I would say a counter, and he'd say, well, how do you back that up? <laughs> and so I grew up with a very strong lean towards the academic mindset, but informed by a really rich and deep heart. And so that's what this mm. book is. It's like a dialogue between the ways that my two parents have shaped this unique brain of mine. And um, I tell people all the time, academic writing is my favorite thing, but I am unable to do it without personal experience and anecdote. And literally, in my undergrad and graduate programs, my professors always identified that. They said, you have this way of taking mm -hmm. the academic and making it personal. And so that's probably my secret sauce of writing, if I, you know, reach around and pat myself on the back. <laughs> It's what I like to do. It's what I'm good at. I can't do numbers, but I can do words. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love it. Okay, so we're, we are rounding out the interview now. What is something that you want the listener to truly take away from this conversation and the work that you do in the world? I would love it for parents to feel that they had the tools and the skills to build connection even in the midst of conflict with their kids. That that feeling that their child is having an idea or a belief or a perspective that is threatening to the family status quo beliefs, that it isn't a threat, that they can actually build connection. They can actually increase intimacy, tenderness, a feeling of closeness. And weirdly, critical thinking is the way to do that. Um, and then on top of it, I think parents will feel so much better about sending their kids into the internet space and into adulthood and college if they think they've given them actual tools, not just helpful hints, right? So my book is just loaded with activities and practical application that I think will really, really make that possible for them. I love it. Well, the book is Raising Critical Thinkers out February 1st. Where can our listener find more about you online and get the book? Follow me on Instagram. My account is at Julie Brave Writer, so my name plus Brave Writer. And then RaisingCriticalThinkers.com has every link to every place that you can buy the book. For those who order before the first, there are some pre-sale bonuses. You can read about those there. Otherwise, after publication is great. And on the publication date, we will also be making available a free downloadable guide for people who want to have book clubs with the book. It's beautifully designed. It's something like 40 pages and um, something you can use if you want to study it in a group for free. Love it. Oh, thank you so much, Julie. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for bringing five wonderful children into the world who are all critical thinkers, I'm certain. So thank you. Thank you so much. I, I should have mentioned too, you can certainly learn more about Brave Writer at bravewriter.com too. But thank you so much, Elizabeth. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You are a very talented interviewer. That was lovely. Oh, thank you. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast.